Hello, everyone. Alexandre Vieira here, and welcome to the 10th episode of the Economics of Everything podcast with yours truly and Alejandro Esquivel. Here on Econ of Everything, we believe that economics in its purest form is a study of how people make decisions. Thus, our goal is to make our audience informed decision makers in all parts of their life. We will do this by breaking down topics we look at with data, research, and practicing theories. We will also be looking at topics critically and agnostically, which discourages empirics to employ an economic lens. The goal of our team is to break down the complex nature of economics to help you employ a critical thinking strategy and holistic approach on topics to help you become a de better decision maker. Now, today we'll be having a special guest. Uh, his name is Joe Allen Castilla. Alex, would you like to do the honors? Yeah, he's a really great person that we met through LinkedIn. He works, he actually recently graduated from Texas A&M with an econ major as well. And he's had the pleasure and privilege of working with the Insight Data Science Fellowship Program. And he focused a lot on blockchain and has spent a majority of his career really looking into crypto and what makes it shine, what works, what doesn't work, and how it really works in the back end. So, Alan, if you could give us a little uh, summary of your life and why you really got into crypto in the first place. Well, thanks for having me on, guys. I really appreciate it. Um, before crypto, I had a relative interest in financial markets and in just fraud in general, ranging from stuff like Enron to 2008 financial crisis. And I wasn't really invested in crypto until 2015 when I learned about Ethereum and started really trading off again, off again with uh cryptocurrencies. And then as I finished my econ degree at AM, I started thinking more about the game theory aspects and how incentives work with blockchain projects, which just let me down a rabbit hole of working with different groups within the cryptocurrency communities. And then most recently I was started working more on the developmental side and really learning how that works when I started working at Insight Data Science as a Decentralized Consensus Fellow. Interesting. Wow. So awesome. you, you've been uh, really diving back and forth into crypto since 2015. That's almost five years of looking in through it. Mm -hmm. Now, what is cryptocurrency then? Like what, what, what are we really talking about today? Well, to get to like the Merriam-Webster dictionary kind of definition out of the way, it's like an internet-based medium of exchange which uses cryptographic functions to conduct financial transactions. And those cryptocurrencies leverage blockchain technology to gain the three pillars of what's really important, decentralization, transparency, and immutability. And a timestamp series of immutable records of data, which are stored in blocks, is managed by a cluster of computers, which are not owned by a single entity. It's basically run by a community of people, basically all working together. And each of these blocks of data is secured and bound to each other using the cryptographic principles developed by the team that I see, which is called the chain. Definitely. You, you mentioned the three pillars of what uh, makes a cryptocurrency a, uh, a cryptocurrency, which is decentralization, transparency, and immutability. Um, so decentralization and transparency are kind of a uh, something that you don't really need to define. I, I feel like those are pretty uh, well-renowned terms, but what exactly is immutability? Immutability is things that shouldn't like that can never be changed. So an example would be how the core functions of how 
a block is mined on Bitcoin should never be changed or the records, basically all the transactions on the chain, for example, on Bitcoin or Ethereum should never ever be overwritten mm. because if they are, then it's not immutable. And to go into a little history lesson that actually did happen with Ethereum a couple of years back where they had a basically kind of like an attack of sorts where a lot of money was stolen or a lot of Ethereum was stolen. And they actually did fork it to overwrite those the criminal transactions, which means wow. they basically overwrote all those transactions that happened. And they can go back and forth um, on why it was good or why it was bad. But um, it goes to show that immutability is very important in terms of uh, cryptocurrency because you want, because so it comes down to uh, really coming down to those three pillars of what a cryptocurrency is and to change from that can really shake the foundation of like trust within that cryptocurrency community. So ideally you should be able to track a cryptocurrency from the current transaction all the way back to when it was mined initially, right? That's what immutability really goes into. Because if you start writing it. Yep. From when it was mined to when it was sent to that person to when it was sent to that person, when it was sent over there to there to there, you should be able to go all the way back. And if it's changed somewhat, then yeah, it can be a problem. Okay. That's no. that's really cool. That's a really cool concept that I uh, I definitely think it makes it a little bit more of a comparative advantage, like uh, the U.S. dollar, especially. You know, uh, I I don't know the the twenty dollar bill or the one dollar bill that's sitting in my wallet. I don't I don't know where that's been. Um, whereas a uh, a cryptocurrency, you know, it sounds like you can trace it all the way from who mined it, and uh, it could, it could be a pretty cool uh, pretty cool project there. Um, no. Yeah, I, I agree. I feel like it's a pro, but really, I feel like that also goes down to that uh, that other pillar, decentralization, because currently anybody knows where it comes from. But if the U.S. government, for example, knew where all of the dollars went and where which all of the transactions happened, then it really goes into a violation of human privacy. If yeah. all of your transactions are, are tracked and displayed in such a open platform situation. Well, that's why Monero exists. Well, there's a lot of privacy coins within the blockchain space where, yeah, they had that same idea that you had, where the leader in that is specifically Monero, where I don't know really, I remember reading about the specifics and how it worked when I was at Insight, but I kind of forgot about it. But the big the big brain idea of Monero is that once you send it out to someone, it's basically jumbled together with a bunch of other transactions to where you don't know where it's coming from. Oh, interesting. So okay. kind of like how they dealt with um, mortgage-backed securities. They just put a whole bunch of mortgages into the security and sold it off. So you don't really know what each security is. And that's a little far out there but i'm just trying to make a connection yeah the, <laughs> yeah the uh the connection i i see where you're trying to go there but i, I think more of the connection would be it's just like basically a general ledger of say yeah. um, you know maybe 10 transactions is that usually around uh what 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 it is alan mm -hmm. 
um, that basically just gets sent out into the blockchain environment that's uh, that's immutable. Um, but you know, going going to the point of uh, being being uh, you know an infringement on on human privacy, I, I think you know you're not posting a uh, you're not posting a, a general ledger that says you know so and so or Alejandro Esquivel um, bought you know toilet paper at Walmart. You know that I don't think that's the the point of the uh, the transparency or the uh, um, the general ledger that that keeps a tally. I think it's more so just that you know you, you understand the environment and you understand where these uh, these currencies are going to from and where they originally came from. I, I don't think it gets it gets into the nitty gritty, um, nor do I think uh, um, Bitcoin or any type of cryptocurrency um, has ever thought of or or hopefully will not do. Mm -hmm. So what is this blockchain technology really? Like, is this a new technology that was recently implemented? And does it allow for different applications outside of just this currency? Because it seems like a new way of computing. I mean, when Satoshi Nakamoto wrote the block, Bitcoin, block, Bitcoin white paper in 2008, he did have some, I guess what you could say, he was inspired by other people to do it. They were because the idea of this decentralized ledger of uh, decentralization of money and having like a transparent ledger is not new. I think there was something called B money that was put out a long time. Uh, I think it was early 2000s that had that existed before Bitcoin and it was an idea. So the idea of blockchain has existed before Bitcoin, but it was just implemented. It was first implemented within Bitcoin. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. Awesome. It, and it seems like blockchain is even being used for more than just a uh, um, Bitcoin. Um, but going back to the, the topic of cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin, um, one thing that uh, really sticks out to me as another comparative advantage is uh, it's um, it's limited source or uh, or lim it's finiteness, uh, uh, if you will. Um, so one one thing uh, you know that Bitcoin I think offers is it's it is finite, correct? Yeah, well, technically yes, but if you want to go in the nitty gritty, it's changed somewhat. Like with if you want to go into the nitty gritty history of it, but yeah, it is scarce, finite. Okay. But is um, cryptocurrency a limited currency in general? Yes. No. I mean, whoever creates the cryptocurrency determines whoever creates it and the the community they're involved with decides the monetary policy. Okay. Okay. So the uh, the actual supply of a cryptocurrency is. Uh, declared by the original inventor and the original um, author, yeah. if you will? Okay. Yeah, the inventor and the community in which um, they're a part of. It's not usually, it's usually not just one person. There's usually a big community deciding this should be like this or it should be like that. And once they have a consensus of what they want to move, do moving forward, then that will usually be the monetary policy. It's sometimes it's just one person, like with Bitcoin. Well, we don't know who Satoshi Nakamoto is or whether it was a group of people, but they did decide 
this is what the monetary policy is going to be. Awesome. One thing that you mentioned, I think is super cool that you're, you're talking about um, from an economic lens is monetary policy. But I want to be careful. I mean, is is cryptocurrency necessarily money? Um, Alex, I know you just kind of ran through uh, last week um, what what money is. You want you want to run through that for uh, for cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin? Yeah. For those of us that weren't didn't get to catch the last episode. So money a sound money needs to have three basic pillars. And I'm very curious on your takes if it covers these pillars, is it needs to, first of all, have a medium, be a medium of exchange for a system. It has to have a unit of account and it has to be able to store value. Now, I have my opinions on it, but Alan, what do you think? Do you think that cryptocurrency covers the needs of all three of these pillars? And if there was a pillar where you feel like it lacked some strength, where, which one would it be? Um, there's some cryptocurrencies that fit the current model of what we consider money better than others. Bitcoin actually used to be, it used the narrative behind Bitcoin used to be that it was money. But as the year has gone on, has it gone a lot slower? Transaction costs have gone up, uh, volatility in prices. It's changed to more of like a digital gold narrative for Bitcoin. So in terms of, well, if you ask a Bitcoiner, they would ask that, yeah, it's money because one Bitcoin is one Bitcoin and they're dealing it. They're living in their own world of everything I transact in is Bitcoin. I have no use for dollars. So, but that's not usually the world that everyone else lives in. So I would, for me personally, I would consider Bitcoin not money, but more of a commodity since the medium of exchange, the transaction costs are getting a lot higher because the rewards, well, that's, we're getting now into the nitty gritty of how, um, how rewards work for Bitcoin, whatever. But just to keep it simple, transaction costs are going up in terms of sending Bitcoin to one person to another, just like the fees. Um, one thing that stores, you, one, yeah. It does have a unique account. One thing that you mentioned is that you the cryptocurrency is moving from a currency to a commodity, but there's commodities like silver and gold, which have continued to be argued to be the only sound money because of their high store of value. And with something that you mentioned with the forking of the cryptocurrency, how can you truly argue that any sole crypto, cryptocurrency, be it Bitcoin, Ethereum, or any other, will continue to hold its value through series and series of forks without you being able to really adjust with the times. That's what the community has to decide. Sometimes they have to determine this is the Bitcoin we're running with. Whether if it goes through a fork where they have some changes in the how rewards are spent or it changes the money monetary policy they don't like, they're going to switch to a new one. It's, it's probably going to be very uh, traumatic and very controversial, but that's usually how the Bitcoin community works. I just want to make sure we're all on the same page here because I don't know if we did uh, the forking definition enough justice. Uh, yeah, you kind of just it's like just to clarify, what what is a uh, a forking of a cryptocurrency? So forking is basically going to like there's two different uh, types of forks. There's a soft fork, there's hard forks. Soft forks are basically like upgrades. So we're like. Let's say we're going like you're going from version one to version two of Bitcoin. Soft forks just like, hey, we added these new features. Everyone's going to go to the new the the new version. 
And hard forking is basically we've created a completely new coin. We've basically taken the, the, the code and forked it to where it's completely new, completely new name, completely new everything. Like it has the same base as the old, as the old cryptocurrency used to use, but it has these different things we're doing with it, different monetary policy, whatever. And you can choose to use it or not. So okay. what happens for me if I have a crypto coin, if I have a Bitcoin, for example, and then it goes through a fork, do I now have two different Bitcoins or do I get to pick which way my Bitcoin goes at that time? So hard forks, usually I've seen in the past is that if, you, if it's going through a hard fork, you'll get the same amount of whatever new coin you get compared to the old coin versus a soft fork, which is an upgrade. It's backwards compatible to the previous versions of it. Okay. So soft forks, the upgraded nodes can still talk to the non-upgraded nodes, mm -hmm. but hard forks can't. Okay, so you get compensated for that change and then you get, you have at the end of the day, two cryptocurrencies. If the creators in the community want to compensate you. Okay. Okay. Um, so going back to is a, a cryptocurrency money and using Bitcoin as the example, um, I just want to play devil's advocate here a little bit. So I'd argue medium of exchange. I mean, you can trade on Robinhood. Uh, I think even some other brokers are adding it as a as an option to trade. So it's definitely got an exchange market there. Um, store of value. I, I mean, Bitcoin is, uh, you know, volatile. And, and recently we've we've seen it, you know, become, um, you know, volatile even more so. But I think just as gold um, has its has its sell sell offs in, in times of, uh, you know, uh, slow, you know, economic, uh, you know, economic activity. Um, I think Bitcoin is, is the same. So I think that store of value is is definitely there and sound. Mm -hmm. um, and unit of account, I mean, not necessarily uh, the best measure, but I can cash in. I can buy a Bitcoin, um, you know, a fraction of a Bitcoin and own, you know, necessarily not own necessarily one Bitcoin, but I can own a part of a Bitcoin. So it is definitely broken down into smaller pieces. So right. in my mind, you know, playing devil's advocate here, I think it could definitely be considered your money, just like gold, silver, or uh, or the dollar. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree. It definitely has a unit of account. Um, I think it's divisible by, I think, 12. So you would have like one Satoshi is like 0 0.000001 Bitcoin or something. So it does have a unit of account, which I do agree with. Um, store value, just like you said, it's just like gold. just goes up and down all the time. But there's, uh, I guess it just goes back into the idea of what you think money should be in terms of should if you want it to be consistent you don't want values to change too often versus just letting the market do its thing and uh, having values change every so often but in terms of store value what a bitcoin or any cryptocurrency person would say is like one bitcoin equals one bitcoin right so as long as if in a market where, where people accept Bitcoin, it's this amount, this amount. It's one, let's say it's 0.5 Bitcoin, it'll be 0.5 Bitcoin. Awesome. So, so it really doesn't matter to Bitcoiners because 
to them, like who, who cares what happens with the dollar? We're, we're focusing on Bitcoin. Right. So in, in its own right, it can definitely be considered money um, to, the, yeah. to, the, to the right crowd. Um, but I think there yeah. is still uh, a lot of people who are still yet to be convinced on, I mean, even cryptocurrencies uh, need in society, uh, let alone if it's a uh, sound monetary structure. Um, but- yeah. Yeah, I was... Mm-hmm. I was hoping you could draw a little comparisons from the the crypto world and the U.S. economic structure. I know you've been throwing around monetary policy every once in a while, but what does monetary policy look like in the crypto world? Okay, so that's a good question. So in terms of just like monetary policy, how they deal with uh, how much there should be. Bitcoin, they wanted to be 21 million. That was the original goal. That's what always be the goal. That will never, ever, ever change, at least within Bitcoiners. They wanted to be scarce forever. Um, there's other cryptocurrencies. I know Monero is one of them. Ethereum's one of them, where they do have an unlimited money supply. And then once they get to a certain date, there will be a baseline reward given to miners forever. So technically there is an infinite money supply for them because they want to give miners, their argument is they want to give miners an incentive to keep mining and keep fees low versus their, their argument saying that if you don't give an incentive for miners to mine, they're going to increase fees, which will lead transactions to become much more expensive for, for Bitcoin in particular. Uh, you lost me a little there. Why would transactions become more expensive if miners no longer are mining? Okay, so we have first, then we have to go into the structure of mining rewards. Mm-hmm. So mining rewards are basically the thing you get when you put put you use your GPU or whatever you're using to mine Bitcoin. If you mine a block, you get a certain reward of Bitcoin. Whether it's you're working with others in a pool of basically GPUs working together, or you're mining by yourself. You will, if you mine a block, you will get a reward. And I think, I don't know what the specific amount for Bitcoin is right now in terms of rewards, but uh, it's a certain amount. And in the future, there will be a time when there'll be no more rewards for block, for big for Bitcoin miners. So they're gonna want some way to make money uh, uh, mining Bitcoin. And the other way they can make money is fees, the transaction fees sending from one person to another. So what most people are predicting is that once those rewards go away or they reach a point where it's not, because they there is a kind of prediction that Bitcoin's gonna be worth this million, billion, bajillion dollars. And uh, as the rewards go down, it's not gonna matter in terms of say paying for uh, mining costs because it, if, as long as you get something you'll be able to pay for costs, but if that doesn't happen, then as awards go down, you gotta make up the difference somewhere, okay. which is the fee. So are the miners the, the one that are supporting the blockchain system? Yes. Without miners, there will be there will be no transactions going in and out uh, within uh, between nodes or between users. Interesting. So are miners really like the, the, the record keepers and they are the ones that send the transactions through? Is that how, is that what their role is in this? They basically just verify. Okay. 
are those the calculations that they're always doing? I always hear that miners, Bitcoin miners yeah. are doing calculations. I never really know what those numbers are for. Yeah, they're basically doing just like a bunch of math to solve uh, for a nonce, which is a number only used once. Okay, cool. They're solving for a specific thing. Interesting. That That's uh, why, you know, so many, uh, I, I've read a couple of articles of why Bitcoin miners want like the highest, uh, you know, CPU powered uh, computers that they can find to, to mine these um, because it can take, I mean, uh, up to uh, maybe six months to mine a Bitcoin. Is that correct? Well, if you, if you mine by yourself, then yeah, it's going to take forever. Right. Um, but I also read in, you know, a couple of other articles that have said, I mean, people aren't just mining with uh, with one computer. They have like an entire, um, what do they call them, farms that are uh, yeah. that are basically just sitting there mining all day. Yep. Those are called pools. Pools. <laughs> so pools, I think slush is one of them. There's a bunch of them out there and they have like basically a market share of the Bitcoin hash rate. So Bitcoin hash rate is basically the amount of power that's going into verifying transactions. So let's say slush has 30% or 20%. And it's not just them. It's basically a bunch of people, right? Basically wanting to mine, but they don't have like a bunch of GPUs or specific hardware. So they go to slush and be like, Hey, I want to mine too. So they'll pay a little, pay a little fee and they get to mine and then they'll get a reward and they'll pay. So, and it's basically just, you pay to mine and then you get a little bit, you get a, you, you're basically working together with a bunch of other people. Okay. Nice. So it's like your little, uh, buy-in for, uh, for mining Bitcoin. And then if you are awarded, um, does it get split upon the pool or, or how does that work? Yeah, so because the mining rewards are actually pretty big. Uh, I think they used to be like 12 or so. Like, I guess you, let's say, for example, the mining rewards like 12 BTC. If there's like 100 something miners, everyone gets a piece. And then you also pay the pool fee, the guy managing the pool. Okay. Right? Cool. So I'm a little curious what happens because I, I like the cryptocurrency and I like the, that it uh, allows for simple monetary policy. And if you're in a system, if you're in like a developing country who doesn't really have a strong monetary system, it's a good way for you to introduce one very simply. Uh, what would happen if, for example, the U.S. transferred their whole currency system into cryptocurrency? Because then you really do start losing a lot of that anonymity that I feel a lot of crypto owners hold really near and dear if they have all of these transactions being monitored by a big government. That'd be interesting because I think Facebook want to do something like that with Libra. And I have a guy on Twitter that I know pretty well. His name is David Gerard, who wrote a book on called Libra Shrug, where it's basically like uh, companies like these big tech companies want to create what you just said, just like basically a digital currency that everyone uses. And the questions you would have to ask is, okay, what kind of consensus algorithm would you run for mining? Would you do proof of work, proof of stake? Basically, there's a bunch of consensus algorithms of how you will be mining these things. Mm -hmm. So it'd be really interesting for that to figure that out. I, I'm pretty sure it would be another centralized uh, 
kind of like the treasury where there would only be one miner or it'd be the government or there'd be like some sort of federalism where each state is a node. But it would be really interesting to figure that out. I agree. That's where uh, I feel I'm most interested in um, Bitcoin because personally, I feel like having a monetary system within your own economy is very beneficial. You can kind of do things like a little coupon system by giving out people, giving people dollars. And it's a good way for you to track productivity. And that's why the dollar is used so frequently in other countries. But as we start going into it, you know, it's a good way for you to track productivity in different systems outside of just the US or China or Japan and really just go, what is, how much, how effective was Alex Vieira on Facebook and how much currency, Facebook currency does he owe, do we owe him? And like that kind of conversation really starts to happen. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I think we covered a lot here in this uh, cryptocurrency podcast. I think we uh, definitely made a case for why it could be considered money or uh, a commodity or and why it also could not be. Um, are there any uh, closing thoughts that you'd have for us, Joanna? Um Yeah, definitely. Um, I definitely recommend people look into the just more of like the back end of how cryptocurrencies work because I've seen a lot of people try to advocate for blockchain solutions for different things, different niches like voting and all that. But there's a lot of uh, quirks that need to be worked out and you need to determine how that, how would you fix those quirks if you really want to use things for like, they will use blockchain technology for other things other than money. Because it there's a, there's a lot of issues that come, that come along with, uh, using blockchain in other uh, realms besides economics. Definitely. Do you have any books that you would recommend anybody to read if they want to learn? Um, there's definitely, uh, I would definitely look into the history just doing your own research, like Googling or DuckDuckGoing or whatever search engine you use. Find just like the history. I actually did find out that Satoshi Nakamoto actually was inspired to do Bitcoin based on a 1990s paper from Wei Dai, who was who created B Money. He did a paper on it talking about an anonymous ledger. It's always crazy to me. So that be so. I would definitely recommend Wei Dai's paper, Libra Shrugged by David Gerard, talking about Libra. Um, there's I mean, there's a lot of Twitter accounts I could recommend you can go check out. Yeah, you're definitely well-versed in the universe. And I think that's uh, pretty punny. The uh, Libra shrugged, I think, taking, shrugged, taking a take on the uh, Atlas shrugged by uh, Ayn Rand, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, definitely. The uh, the cryptocurrency world is something that's not, uh, you know, for the faint of heart. It, it's a pretty deep rabbit hole. And um, if you consider yourself uh, you know, educated on it, I, I think that's awesome. Um so thank you again for, for coming on the podcast. I, uh, we, we really appreciate it here on the Econ of Everything. Yeah, we hope to, yeah, no problem. hope to have you back on here again sometime in, a, in the future. And I really want to thank all of our listeners for joining us on the 10th episode of the Economics of Everything. 
We look forward to filling the world with more informed decision makers like you. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Econ of Everything, no G, and the Economics of Everything on LinkedIn and Facebook with a G. Also, you can contact us at theeconofeverything at gmail.com. And if you could leave us a like, comment, or review on the podcast, let us know what you think, who you'd want to talk to, and who you'd really want to see on the podcast. We'd really appreciate it. Alan, thank you again for coming on. Just wanted to reiterate, Helen got in touch with us via LinkedIn. Uh, a couple months later, here we are on the podcast. So don't be a stranger. The economics of everything. Our interest is always in your future value.